Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Well, it may not be afternoon when you're listening to this, but it is for me today. Uh, it's a beautiful January day, and the sun's coming in the windows as the snow is melting, so um, it's a good time for us to talk about the Scripture. And we're going to be in Chapter 5 of John today, and uh, this is Brad Scott at First United Methodist Church in Sweetwater, Tennessee, and uh, glad that you could join us. As we begin today, I want to say a few words about how Scripture has been received by us. How did we get the Bible? And um, I'm saying that because there are some varieties of what appears in the text that we read, what we see published um, in the English language. There's a lot of different, uh, what we call the original manuscripts. When we say original manuscripts, that's kind of misleading because there isn't an existent original. What we have are uh, copies. What happened with the um, scripture uh, texts through the centuries from the beginning was people wrote it down. And then they copied it. And as they copied it, the original would have gotten in a shape that they would have replaced it. They would, they would have gotten rid of it. And um, so we rely on these copies. We try to date the copies to say this one is older than this other one. And it, therefore... How it relates things to us may be more authoritative because of the age. And that may or may not be true. Because sometimes those who copied them uh, didn't always have the ability to read what they were writing. So they were scrolls and they were doing, they were writing it down and um, they may have missed a place. So occasionally someone will go back and edit that and, and add in between the lines a section of the text or maybe they'll go out next to it and add it and you know they didn't have the ability for the text to be cleaned for it to be the way we see it when it's published what we see is based on the whole print world, which is only about 500 years old because, uh, you know, Gutenberg invented the printing press about the time of Martin Luther in the 1500s. And, um, you know, the scripture goes back 2,000 years, the New Testament, and uh, the Old Testament's much older than that. And um, so we have these variants in the text. Well, today's passage that we're going to read is one of those that has some variants. That's one of the reasons I wanted to explain that to you because as we look at it, we have to ask ourselves which which variant holds authority over the others. And this is where people have a lot of problems because you know, like even like the King James had access to certain scrolls that other translations since then have had have um, have had access to different different um, original sources. 
So as they've tried to rectify that, some of the modern translations will leave some things out or they'll put it down in a footnote. And people get really been out of shape about that because it's things that in the King James has become very uh, prevalent, something that they remember as they read the passages. And so some sometimes things like that happen as modern translations are developed because they have different sources. And uh, all the versions, I think, have some authority to them. I think they have some um, dependability to them in the fact that we can receive uh, the gospel through them. But, uh, you know, how they view certain sections have to do with how prevalent that text was in an older source uh, or across the whole collection of sources that we know of. In my Greek New Testament, there's a, a lot of places where you have to go down below the text and read, you know, what manuscripts have what words and which ones leave something out, which ones change things. And so when they translate scripture, they, they weigh all that and then they and then they put it together so that we can read it. And most of the time we don't pay any attention to it because it's just there and uh, and we just go on. So I want to read the text today and I'm going to read it as it's printed in this uh, new, new Revised Standard Version. And then I'll make note of some, some things that are a little bit different. So here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a festival of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called, in Hebrew, Beth Zatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that, that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, therefore making himself equal to God. 
well, it's a very interesting narrative, very interesting story that uh, John has recorded in the fifth chapter. This is this is uh, adding some tension to what we've seen so far, as we've noticed that every little bit um, Jesus is being judged by uh, groups of leaders within Israel. And um, here he's being judged again. And said they're being they're judging him very harshly, in so far that they are totally ignoring the fact that Jesus healed a man. It's not that you know. Um, it's not celebrating healing taking place. It's saying, "Hey, you broke a rule." And the rule has to do with the fact that you can't do anything on the Sabbath that smacks of work. I've shared this before in the church, and I don't know that everybody has heard it, but you know, when you go to Israel, I, I went to Israel several years ago, 1995. On the Sabbath in the hotel that I stayed in, several stories tall, and when you go in the elevator... You don't touch the buttons on the Sabbath. You ride the elevator up or you ride the elevator down and it stops on every floor going up and going down so that you get in and you be patient. <laughs> You'll get to where you want to go, but it may take quite a while. If you're on the seventh floor, and while you're on the elevator, you decide you want to go to the eighth floor. You have to ride seven floors down and eight floors up <laughs> because they don't believe in work, and work is punching a button. And so this same thought process pervaded Jewish practice in the time of Jesus. And so the Jews were worried about that. Well, let's go back and, and look at the setting of this. First of all, we hear again that this is another festival. John talks more about the different festivals uh, and places Jesus in context in times when festivals were going on in Jerusalem. Let me explain that just a little bit. You know, in Jewish life in those days, there were certain uh, moments that the people of Israel came to Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice and so forth according to the, to the law. And uh, those, those festivals required pilgrimage, and so there were, there were people, lots and lots and lots of people in the town of Jerusalem. And... Uh, I shouldn't call it a town. I guess it's a town whenever no, no one's there, but it's a city when the festivals are going on. And so here we we start this at another point where there's a festival. People are there. So what's going to go on is is going to be at a time that there are lots of people. So John continues to explain to us about um, this festival. He says, now in Jerusalem... By the sheep gate, that's one of the gates into the city. Other gates are the lion's gate, the western gate, 
um, the western gate is the one you can't go in. It's blocked up. I'm sorry, the eastern gate. That's the eastern gate. And um, so there's this pool by the sheep gate that has a name in Hebrew. And um, one of the variants, one of the textual variants says it's not Hebrew but Aramaic, which is probably right because in the New Testament times, Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. And um, and then it names that pool Bethzatha. Beth in Hebrew or Aramaic, both, means house. And then Zatha um, would have a meaning. Um, and uh, the textual variants give us some different ways of spelling that. Um, and the variations are Bethesda, B-E-T-H-E-S-D-A, and Bethsaida, Beth-S-A-I-D-A. So you get different versions of, of that. And they all are... Uh, you know, the Latin or Greek trying to understand Hebrew language. And he, Hebrew, doesn't, Hebrew doesn't translate well or even transliterate well into other languages because Hebrew largely is consonants. Vowels have been added by dots and other little lines and things. Uh, around the consonants, but the consonants are prom are prominent. So, finding a word like Bethzatha and having variations like Bethesda and Bethsaida are all versions of Hebrew or Aramaic pronunciations. So, uh, here's this pool. It's got a name. That's the important thing. It's a named pool. That means you can even go today and say, where's this pool? And they'll show you where they think it was. And uh, it says it has five porticos. The porticos are, you know, like a porch, like a freestanding porch around this these pools. So this, this was built as a way for people to uh, rest and relax around this pool as part of the, part of the, uh, one of the features of Jerusalem. And then it says, in these lay many invalids. So there were many people who were sick. Uh, people who were blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then, um, then we have this interesting variation in the text that in my version, has a, it's footnoted, but you'll find this in the regular text in the King James. And it says this, it says, other ancient authorities add wholly or in part the words that these people are waiting for the stirring of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease that person had. So it's kind of interesting that that was added. I mean, it's it's like someone said, well, why, why were these people around this pool? 
And so someone found an explanation for it, and they added that later. They, they think. They think that's why that's there. But it's important to the story to understand why, the, why we have this context of a pool that have all these people around it. Why are sick people around this pool? Why, why not other pools? If it's just water, you can go with any water and live around it. But this particular pool, according to the variation in the text... The footnote um, says it's because of the stirring of the water. There was something in that water um, that was important. Something that happened, uh, he says, an angel of the Lord came down sometimes and stirred it up. And whatever happened caused those who first stepped into it after that to be made well. Can you imagine that? You know, we, we have such a time with health care now, don't we? Wouldn't it be so much easier if we could just wait at a, at a beautiful pool for the stirring of the water and whoever gets in there first gets healed. The rest of us just have to wait. And um, I can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, when you, when you became the one that got healed and you look around at the other people as you're coming out of the water, uh how would you feel about that? How would they feel about it? Knowing that you got healed and they didn't. And here was a man who was laying by this pool ill for 38 years. <laughs> 38 years is, you know, the that's pushing lifespan, isn't it? Yeah. In, in these days, people live 30 or 40 years, mostly, we think. Um, so he's been ill almost all his life, especially his working life. He's not been able to work. He's had to depend on others. And here he's at this pool hoping for the opportunity to see this water stir and get in the water. And, um, Jesus just cuts to the chase. He looks at him and he says, um, do you want to be made well? I don't know why Jesus pulled this man aside. You know, it says there were many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Many. Don't know how many were there, but, you know, many is a lot. And Jesus finds one. And that's, that's an interesting thing. It brings up some issues of justice, you know, how... How is it fair for God to heal one person and not heal someone else? It may be that, you know, the fairness part of that is God's trying to heal all of them, but this one's the one that listened. You know, we don't we don't know, but but that's certainly that's certainly indicative of where we are with our understanding of human suffering. There's times we just cannot explain why how was it, uh, Rabbi Kushner said it, uh, why good thing, why bad things happen to good people? You know, why, why don't good things happen more to people? We don't know. But Jesus looked at the man and said, do you want to be made well? What an interesting invitation he just gave him. Because he's about to heal him. 
but listen to the man's response. You know, when you've been sick 38 years, you're so used to being sick that you can't even think about wellness. You can't even understand what wellness looks like. All he can do is dwell in his fatalism. I can't do this and I can't do that because this and that won't work. That's, have you ever been in a position like that? He says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Yeah. So he's pretty much just going to lay there until everybody's gone. <laughs> he's the last one. He's resigned himself to that. What a sad life. Jesus just looks at him and says, stand up. There, there's that action verb again. When Jesus looks at you and says something like this, you can't help but do it. Because Jesus is always letting forth action. Stand up, take your mat, and walk. Those are three verbs. Stand up, take, and walk. wonder what happened. Did the fella feel better? Did it work? Was it fair? How come the other people couldn't stand up, take up their mat and walk also? Well, verse 9 says, At once the man was made well. So Jesus inquired of him. He asked him, Do you want to be made well? The man responds with all his excuses why he can't. He never did say, yeah, I'd like to be made well. But Jesus turns around and gives him action with his words. And that produces the effect that at once he was made well and he took up his mat and began to walk. That's a beautiful story. If it ended right there, we'd be happy enough. But here again, we hear the music tense up, just like in a Western when the evil people come around. <laughs> and the evil people here are the leaders of the faith. And here are the words that begin their section. Now that day was a Sabbath. Jewish Christians who first heard the gospel of John would immediately have known, uh-oh, this is a problem. That day was a Sabbath. There are certain things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. You know, growing up, I remember there were things we couldn't do on the Sabbath. We couldn't go in stores. Restaurants were not open. Sometimes gas stations were not open. You had to fill up on Saturday if you wanted to go places on Sunday and you didn't go far. And, you know, even the some of the food that uh, we got used to having at picnics um, is related to the fact that you're not supposed to cook on Sunday. It's, you know, Sunday's our Sabbath. Saturday was their Sabbath, but, but Sunday's, Sunday's ours. And they, um, you know, fried chicken, you can fry chicken up the day before. It's pretty good cold. <laughs> Deviled eggs are pretty good cold, aren't they? You can make all that stuff. 
So Sunday dinner, remember back when we used to have Sunday dinner? It used to be that the people who put that together did it so there was no cooking on the day of. You know, preacher cookies are made so you don't have to cook. <laughs> you can make them on Sunday when company comes because um, you're not having to cook. It's the whole idea of making the stove work that uh, you want to avoid on a strict interpretation of Sabbath. Well, the Jews are even more strict, more strict than that. It is the Sabbath, they said to him, to the man who'd been cured. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. It has nothing to do with the fact that, hey, it's nice that you've been healed. And they didn't say that. They just immediately see that he's carrying his mat, and that's considered labor. It's considered work. And what did God say to, to um, Moses when he gave him the Ten Commandments? Six days shalt thou labor, but the seventh day shalt thou rest. And that shall is a strong word. Thou shalt not. Uh, the Jewish religion lived with that and kind of got a little crazy with it. Because here's a man who's been using this mat to lay on for 38 years. You'd think it would be nice that he's taking it out of the way. But uh, it's the wrong day for it. So it says, he answered them, the man who made me well said to me, take up your mat and walk. In other words, uh, I'm not doing this because I want to. I'm doing it because I was told to. Kind of sounds <laughs> a little like Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't it? So they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take it up and walk? And he didn't know because uh, he, he just didn't know. He, he didn't stay around long enough to ask who Jesus was. And Jesus disappeared in the crowd. So later Jesus finds him in the temple and says to him, Behold, you've been made well. Do not sin anymore. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting twist. Do not sin anymore. I think we need to be very careful that we don't relate sin and illness now, sometimes sometimes it's correct. If you sin, you become ill. But, um, you know, if you, if, if you practice gluttony and you eat too much, you're probably going to have a stomachache. But uh, here, you know, Jesus says that to him. Don't, don't uh, sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Well, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So they started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. And Jesus' answer when they said that to him was, My father is still working and I also am working. In other words, God tells us to rest on the seventh day, but God's still present and active. God's still blessing us. God's still creating. Yeah, in Genesis, God took a rest. I don't know what that rest was like for God. I don't know how that. I don't know how that works. But evidently, Jesus is saying really what he's saying without saying it is that they're over over attention to things about work is not really what the Sabbath was all about. The Sabbath means we have we need a balance in our lives where we're not working 
like we would normally work every day. We do need time to rest. Rest is important. When we get the rest we need, we can deal with the work that we have to do. So then it says, For this reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his Father, making himself equal to God. So here's the seeds planted of what the Jewish leaders will do with Jesus later on when they more or less charge him with blasphemy uh, as he is taken to the cross. So uh, all this is important to us, and um, this, this story shows us that those seeds are planted early in the fifth chapter of John as the things begin to unfold as we get closer to that pivotal event in the life of Jesus. So think about ways that God, through his word, makes us well. When we go to the word, it's like going to the pool and letting the water get stirred so that we can be made well. But that our wellness comes completely from trust in Jesus. So I hope uh, you experience wellness in Jesus' name. And I hope you look for ways to help others experience that as we don't get too hung up on the rules of our faith as much as we do about the person that our faith is entrusted to. Well, keep reading God's Word, and we'll be back in, hopefully, uh, a short time to do another episode. Enjoy yourself. Take care. Bye-bye.